0: Let us take a moment to pray before we think about God's word. Come Holy Spirit, soften our hearts to the word of God. Come among us Holy Spirit with power and deep conviction. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Up to this point in the book of Joshua, things have been quite easy for us, the reader. We've heard God's call through the early chapters to commit ourselves to his purposes. Daunting though that is. But nonetheless, God calls us to it because he promises to be with us. And so as a united people, we are to press forward, we're to dream again. For we know and remember that he is the God who does the incredible and he calls us to greater things and showed his power and his grace through his son upon the cross. But with the story of Jericho and its defeat, we enter upon uncomfortable reading. For none of the city are spared except Rahab and her household these kind of passages raise hard, disquieting questions and reconciling what we read here with what we know of God through Jesus is a challenge, to say the very least. As such, Christians tend to spiritualize these parts of the Scriptures, or we just ignore or reject them completely. And to be honest, I suspect we'd rather just rip out the pages... So, what are we to make of these kind of passages? Does it hold any relevance for us today? Well in answer to those questions I have three words to structure our thinking. Context, character and cross. Firstly context. As with every passage of scripture we need to remember the context We need to note, for example, that we read Joshua through modern lenses tinted by our culture's abhorrence of war and violence and in the case of Christians by Jesus' ethical teachings. The world of Joshua's day jars with us because it is so distant from our time. That's because there is a 3,000 year chasm and vast cultural changes between their time and ours. As one commentator said, in a sense, readers' discomfort with Joshua is a good sign. It shows the depth with which the gospel has transformed them. And not just transformed Christians, but transformed wider society as well, because it was the Christian scriptures that influence people to dream of better treatment for women and children compared to the laws of the day in centuries past, or to ending the slave trade, or to shaping laws which were not just about protecting me, mine, and us, but love for neighbour and love for even enemy. Under context, we also need to remember the wider story of the scriptures, because there is a context which leads to this point of history. In Genesis we read, the Lord said to Abram, in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. For 400 years God had patiently observed The moral decline of the peoples of Canaan, the Amorites. A moral decline which led to child sacrifice as part of their worship of false gods. That too is part of the context. So let's move on to character. And in particular, the character of God. Can God be truly loving when it is his actions that lead to this? Is there a disparity between the God of the Old and New Testaments? Has God got a split personality? Well let's first note that the New Testament shows no unease with Joshua's actions and Jesus never disowns the Old Testament or how it portrays God. In fact Hebrews chapter 11 where we see the great heroes of the faith held up includes the story of Jericho and affirms God's people as well as Rahab as individuals who acted in faith. Somehow the early church looked differently on this story than we do. Why is that? Well, in addition to what I've said earlier about context, as part of the New Testament reading plan I found it really helpful working through the book of Acts again and along the way certain words and ideas have been jumping off the page for me and of relevance for today is a speech Peter makes to people who want to know more about his faith in Jesus and he says to them we are witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem they killed him by hanging him on a cross But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. If someone was to ask about your faith, what would you say? Hopefully, you'd speak about Jesus and the cross. But would you be likely to talk about Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead? <laughs> because I'm not sure many of us would, or even myself, wouldn't be on that high up my list of preaching points. And there could be any number of reasons for that. It makes us uncomfortable. We imagine it makes other people comfort- uncomfortable. I think also we need to remember, again, context. The early church faced great persecution and, and Christians were killed for their faith. I wonder if it's easier in facing great evil to remember and speak about Jesus as judge. Nevertheless, the idea of God of Jesus being judge is a truth affirmed throughout the scriptures and even by Jesus himself. In fact, it could be argued that when Jesus speaks about judgment he's even tougher than the Old Testament. Because let's remember, God in the Old Testament is described as righteous. He's described as merciful, the defender of the weak. And it's the coming of his kingdom which will bring an end to war and true peace for all. All that is said in the Old Testament too. What is more, God's on record as saying through Ezekiel, As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Across the scriptures, God is portrayed as loving, life-giving, merciful, gracious, but he is also holy and righteous, and so the judge of all. I just did my first wedding recently, Um, And as you might expect, we read from 1st Corinthians chapter 13 and in that passage Paul says love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It is not incompatible to have a loving God who also judges evil, judges all sin and that is what happens at Jericho. As we read earlier, God waited. He waited for four hundred years for the Amorites to turn from their ways. And yet eventually he judged them for it, using the nation of ancient Israel to be the agents of his judgment. And maybe that's why the angel says to Joshua that he doesn't take anyone's side because God is not taking sides here. Joshua needed to remember he was part of something bigger. And that part for Joshua and the people was specific. It was time limited. And the Old Testament rarely recalls the violent conquest of Canaan. And it never glories in its harshness. And it never promotes it as policy for the future. But let there be no mistaking. God is judge. Yet he is a judge who is kind and patient. Offering grace after grace after grace. Indeed, he shows it to Jericho. He didn't have to instruct the people to walk around it for six days. God could have judged in an instant. And yet that procession around the city was a final, repeated last chance, a bid, a call to surrender to God. And turn from their ways. Grace still remained a possibility, as we see with Rehab. Now, the balance of God as judge and as loving creator is, is brought into sharp focus with our third word, cross. The story of the fall of Jericho reminds us that God will not look overlook sin forever. And that one day, everyone must give an account to God. And that's uncomfortable. You're probably feeling a bit uncomfortable just now. And we may try to push back. We may try to justify our lives and say, well, I'm not like the Amorites, God. They deserved your judgment, but not us, not me. And yet in the New Testament, we find something different. Paul says to those in Rome, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. We all have gone astray, following our way rather than God's. We don't live up to his standard, his glory. And no matter our outward lives, no matter if they are better than the Amorites, we all have sinned. And so when we stand before God as judge, we come before him as imperfect. And only that which is holy, only that which matches his glory will share in his future kingdom. Friends, would you claim for your holiness to be on a par with God's glory? When I came to faith, I came face to face with my sin because I was at my very moral lowest at that point in life. And for 19 years, I've followed Jesus and, and he has changed my character. He has changed my heart. I'm more mature. I'm not the man I once was. But even this past week, I could give you several examples of when anger has led to sin, of when hurt and apathy that I've experienced has led me to think less of others, to treat them poorly, to minimise them. And even when I felt righteous anger for an injustice that was experienced by someone, it led me to entertain thoughts that are less than God's standard. Friends, we all have a sin problem and nothing we do can cover over that or wipe the slate clean. Indeed earlier in Romans Paul says no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. Paul's saying that that nothing we do can No activity, no religious activity, no good moral behavior makes us righteous or right before God. God's law, as I was saying to the kids, in part, in part, simply helps us see how far short we fall of God's glory. So, is that the end of the story? Is God just circling around the world, kind of waiting just to come with judgment? Well, no. Hallelujah. No, because Paul goes on to say righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. By faith, Rahab turned to the living God and was spared. By faith, we too can be made right with God if we turn to Jesus. Because on the cross, he died as a sacrifice for us. He took upon himself the sin of the world and faced the consequences on his behalf. Yet to benefit from his death, as Paul says, we must respond in faith. We must call upon Jesus for salvation. And if we do, we are justified. Which can be understood as just as if I'd never sinned. It's upon that basis as the actions of the song are debt transferred to Jesus at free gift of forgiveness, so that God the judge can declare us justified. Friends, upon the cross of Jesus, the righteousness and love of God are perfectly balanced, and he waits with open arms to receive us all into relationship with himself, if we will but acknowledge our sin and receive forgiveness through Jesus. It's a choice we all face just like Rahab. Rahab had to decide, is she going to follow her culture? Is she going to follow tradition and upbringing and the influences around her? Or would she turn to the living God in faith and find life? Brothers and sisters, friends, sometimes the scriptures bring an uncomfortable word, speaking from their context into ours such that we might see a fresh, a fuller picture of God's character. He is a loving Father. He loved you enough to give his Son for you. But he is also holy and righteous. And he will not overlook sin forever. He will judge when the time comes. I hope and pray that that we have put our faith in Jesus. Receiving then the forgiveness and reconciliation he secured for each of us by his death. I feel it appropriate today that we just take a moment to pray at the end of our sermon before we close our service. So let us pray. God probably feeling a range of emotions just now. What are you saying to us, to each of us individually today? Is there something we need to ask your forgiveness for, Father? Was there an angry word spoken this past week? Was there an act of kindness that we overlooked or just didn't bother with because we were too busy? Father, have we even come to you for forgiveness in the first place ever? Or are we still trying to justify ourselves by our own actions? Father, if there is anyone who needs to to come to Jesus for the first time, hear now this prayer. And if you're praying this at home or here in the sanctuary, just say it quietly in your head, and your heart. Or if you're at home, feel free to speak out these words with me. Heavenly Father, I am sorry for the things I have done wrong in my life and I name them before you now. Please forgive me. I choose to turn from anything that I know is wrong. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven. And set free and made right with my Heavenly Father. Thank you for this free gift. You also offer me your spirit to live in your ways, to live in faith for the rest of my days and so I receive his presence and gift now as well. Please come into my life By your Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If at home or anyone in the sanctuary has prayed that for the first time, if you have chosen to follow Jesus and ask for forgiveness in his name for the first time, then please come and talk with me because there'll be lots of things coming along your way that might just try to undermine your faith and undermine the step you've taken today and it's important that you come and tell someone so come and tell me and I'll encourage you in that journey